Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. Today we're going to talk about selecting experts. John, how important is it to get the right expert? It will make or break your case. Uh, before we got online here, we were talking about whether you need an expert and whether you should get an expert. And I think experts in what we do are necessary evils. Necessary evils. You got to look at it this way. Whatever they're saying, however wonderful it is and supportive of your case, you're paying them money to review the stuff in the case and come in and testify. And so everybody, it's an understatement to say that they're going to take that with a grain of salt. I think most people think that, you know, equate experts with uh, paid whore is what I saw in a publication. It's like a jukebox. Uh, You put in your quarter and you play the song that you want. And that cuts both ways. So, I mean, if you're sitting around thinking, should we get an expert for this topic? The answer to that is probably no. You know, if you can do without an expert, do without an expert. But on the other hand, when you do need an expert, there's so many different things to think about. But I think the bottom line is you need to get somebody who's a good teacher, a good communicator, somebody that you wouldn't mind having a beer with or going to dinner with, somebody that you like. is has credibility. Over, yeah, credibility, not overstating things. Just an example, I had a crane accident case, and it had to do with crane design, crane operation. My main expert was a guy who had been operating a crane for 38 years here in the city of St. Louis. I had an automotive product case that had to do with a car that welds broke loose and the gas tank let gas escape and it ended up being a post-collision fire. We had some uh, very high-end technical metallurgists and welders, welding standards, all of this. Our star witness in the case ended up being just a guy who was a welder. And he went to welding school and had been welding, you know, 35, 40 years, had never given a deposition before, never been an expert before. And he just took a look at the welds and said, yep, they're bad. Here's why. Here's what happened. Very credible, very believable. So I think you need to give some thought to whether you need an expert. And boy, if you need one, you need to give a whole lot more thought to who that expert's going to be. Yeah. I mean, you certainly have to consider qualifications. And to your point, you don't have to have, you know, the top professor running a department at a prestigious school. Sometimes the best expert, most credible expert you can have is the guy that welds every day in some shop. And that's who people are going to believe. And he may know how to talk to people better. So sometimes you want a thick CV with a bunch of publications and you better check out what those publications say and go through them before, yeah, before you they sit come in up the and depth. Bite you. Right. right. And sometimes you might be better off with like Tommy, the electrician <laughs> who's been doing it for 40 years. And you even got to be careful with Tommy. Well, right. right. <laughs> As you're talking about the potential danger, I'm thinking about the old adage about the, the Chinese character for crisis, which in many accounts is a combination of two characters for danger and opportunity. And people might be wondering, well, what is the danger? Maybe the expert doesn't work. And it's much worse than that, as we were talking about. I know you both have said that in certain cases, you depose the defendant's expert. We represent the plaintiff normally. You depose the defendant's expert and make your case with their expert. Can you talk about how often that happens or what an opportunity that sometimes? The case I was just about to try was a med mal case. There were two defendants in the case, university and the hospital. 
you know, they were fighting liability throughout the case. My expert did a really nice job. He was a Stanford critical care doctor and anesthesiologist, and those were the two issues in the case. And he did a nice job, but they were trying to beat him up, and they were still deputing liability. And then I got the hospital's one liability expert, the only one they hired, to admit that the hospital breached the standard of care within 25 minutes of the depot because it was true. Like I wasn't pulling, it was just true. And then the last expert in the case was the university's last liability expert. And they were trying to bail out the hospital with that expert so they could withdraw the one who admitted it. And then he admitted that the hospital breached the standard of care. So it's not tremendously common where you just, for me, maybe it's more common for you, John, where you get the other side's expert to just totally give up the case. But even if they don't say it, I'd say a good portion of the time, they'll admit enough that the ultimate admission doesn't really have to come out from them. Like the jury understands it once they admit all the facts and what should be done, et cetera. So So I just finished a six-day medical malpractice trial a week and a half ago, and the other side had two liability experts in the case. And between the two of them, I literally had the first one, and this is like what Tim was saying, is because it's true. I mean, those were the facts of the case to admit what the standard of care was and on the stand said, so if the defendant doctors didn't do this, then you're telling the jury to write down they were negligent. And the very next witness actually was a slide from their other expert that admitted that they didn't do it. Now, the end of that was that the jury was out for eight hours, deadlocked, and it was a mistrial because they couldn't reach a verdict. Well, it was a med mal case. Well, as I said, that's a podcast for another day. It was in a place where venue itself is usually a defense to any medical malpractice case. But again, that's a story for another day. So um, I guess the first question is whether you actually need an expert. I mean, I think that kind of segues into that. That's why we're hesitant to get someone if we don't need them or put up multiple different experts like we so often see from the defense side where they'll have you know three people in the same specialty and see how they do. Well, even if you wanna to try to withdraw one, I can play them. But that's why I'm so hesitant to hire somebody if I don't absolutely need them because they may end up giving up my case. And if that happens with my expert, my case is over. The defense maybe can yeah, survive yeah. that And that's sometimes. the thing too, the problem with experts, the good and the bad, the good, bad, ugly is, you know, these are unique witnesses because you actually ask them hypotheticals and ask them what their opinion would be under those circumstances, and they have to answer the question. I mean, how many times has it happened to you, John? You've taken like whatever kind of case it is, a corporate rep and a product case and like several engineer employees or, you know, three doctors and several nurses involved in a medical malpractice case, and you've like built your case and you think it looks really, really good and everything you developed to make, put yourself in a good spot. And then you put your expert up, who's the person you're paying and they give up two thirds of the things that like, no, nope, two thirds of that is irrelevant. Doesn't matter. Didn't cause like, oh my God, you just got rid of all the hottest evidence I had in the case. It's so hard to find a good expert and it's even harder to prep them. And it's even harder than that to get them through a deposition. And as Tim was saying, that's why we'll have two experts in a case or one sometimes, and the other side will have nine or eight, and they'll be overlapping and there'll be two or three on the same subject matter. And I don't know what the idea there is. Maybe you're right. They see how they do in the depositions and maybe not call all of them. But my experience is they end up contradicting they, they, each other. Well, and they call all of them anyway. You know, I've had cases where I'm thinking, okay, they've got three people all saying the same topic. One did really well for them. The other two were just terrible. 
and yet they parade them all in. Do you think that ever helps that they, I think I'm help. just guessing in, the, in their mind, they're thinking, if I have one expert, it's good. If I have two or three, everyone's going to see, oh, there's a consensus going on. Eric, I think it's attempting to buy verdicts. I think that's exactly what it is. And I've had that argument in front of judges several times because it's increasingly happening and there's some bad case law out there that allows it. Johnny, your son, had a trial last year, John, where a prominent defense attorney on the other side literally put up scales in closing argument and put on one side Johnny's one expert and on the other side his eight experts and his three employee doctors and four nurses and said, how can the plaintiff possibly meet their burden of proof? I have 14 people well, that say there are. I think the way to handle it's an attempt that, to buy verdicts. No, the way to handle that is put up your own skills of justice and put the amount of money they spent on experts on one yeah, side. Right. <laughs> right. And see how those skills well, balance. How I out. handle it is I say, um, I saw a lawyer do this recently. Like you are not allowed to do that. But yeah, if they do get to do it, then respond that way. But it's persuasive. You hear something 14 times as opposed to one, people start to believe it. One answer, one misstatement, you live and die with your experts, not even so much your client. In most of the cases, you know, unless it's an auto accident and they're admitting some conduct yeah. or they're unsure about whether the light was green I or red. I was staring at my shoes. <laughs> That's pretty bad in an yeah, auto right, accident. Right, something. But, but most of the cases I'm working on are product cases or medical malpractice cases or commercial cases where what's at issue isn't something client, your client right, can, your client comment, can on. comment on. Right. And so most of the time, 90% of the time, your client's not a professional testifier. I mean, everybody understands that. They can empathize more with your client, I think, than they can with an expert that's getting paid $850 an hour. So I think that when your expert that you've hired and endorsed and supported says something, and it's not hard for a good lawyer to get some concessions out of an expert. The expert's being fair and honest. You're going to take some hits. And the question is, how many hits are you willing to take? And you balance that with what needs you have for the expert testimony. For those who haven't had to hire experts yet or haven't had this much, what kinds of dollars per hour have you seen? What range have you seen these days? I know some of your cases are very complicated. There might only be a few people in the country that really would have expertise in a particular area. So they're much in demand, but it depends on how specialized, you know, I mean, in a product case, if it's like a machine guarding case, you might be paying your expert three, $400 an hour for review and maybe a little bit higher, double that for an hour for depot testimony. If you need a pediatric neurosurgeon in your case, you are paying them for review thousand dollars an hour and you might be paying them two thousand dollars an hour for their depot testimony and i've seen defense ones that are like higher than that which i think is crazy and i start asking them like do you know what the median weekly salary is of the average american we've been here for an hour and a half you know you just exceeded it do you think that's reasonable well the case that we just tried one of the other lawyers from our office pat was cross-examining the life care planning nurse that the defendant had hired in the case. And one of her criticisms of our life care plan is we put the average wage of a nurse in this area, it was too high. In other words, I think we put it at $50 or 60 or something like that. And they said, no, you should be 35 or $33 and 38 cents or something like that. And while she was on the stand critiquing the amount of salary of nurses, Pat asked her, and you're getting paid $650 an hour? <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and she was a nurse. So, <laughs> yeah. And he pointed out that the defendant could have paid 17 nurses you know, hourly based yeah, on what she was good. getting. So every expert comes in the door somewhat tainted because they're getting paid. 
I mean, rarely, rarely you'll get somebody to come in and testify without, you know, a fee. But, you know, that doesn't happen. I mean, practically that doesn't happen. And each side in these cases, there's a lot at stake. Both sides are very well funded in the cases that we handle. We want our experts to be better. We want to step up over what their experts, you know, who they have. So you got to pay money to get good experts. And any other thing, too, the cases involve a lot of material. We were talking about that before earlier that I've had cases where we've paid seven figures in case expenses. And that's just the way it is. I mean, you have to do that sometimes. And sometimes also the amounts get so crazy. I do a lot of automotive product stuff. And there's an automotive manufacturer that in most of those cases, they use the same lineup. It's the same lineup of experts in every single case. They have a lineup of certain experts for post-collision fires, another one for rollovers, another one for roof crush, another one for a wheel or a tire defect. And it's the same folks you see in every case. And most of them have made millions of dollars paid to them by the single defendant in the case. We had one where I think the individual expert, and I don't remember which car company it was, and this person had made like $40 million dollars working for the car company over the last 20 years or 15 years. I mean, what could that person possibly say that anybody would believe? How much does that hurt that party's case that their expert is a repeat player that not only have they been there many times, but you can expect that they will be called in the future. That's, well, yeah, that's going to be their part livelihood. of it too is not only have they been called a lot of times, but we have all of the testimony of you know, the depots that are all out there where they've testified 200 times or 300 times. And we get to ask them questions like, you've never seen a car that was in any way defective. Like in all your years, in all of these cases that you've worked on, you've never recognized or acknowledged a single defect in any automobile. And four of those cases, that particular thing that you addressed, there was a recall. Right, it. exactly. But even Re- then, <laughs> yeah. your recalls. <laughs> so it's the most nerve-wracking, anxious time of your case with your own expert, prepping them, getting them ready, sitting through their deposition. But the flip side is, boy, do we have fun when we're taking the deposition of the defense experts. I mean, you have literally nothing to lose. Whatever they say, they're getting paid for it. I would say eight, nine times out of 10, the other side's experts end up helping us more than they help them. Oh, yeah, I agree. And you know why that is? Let me tell you why that is for everybody listening. It's because if we don't have a good case, guess what? We don't take it. <laughs> You're right. right. It's we're because, not right. It's because what fine. we're saying is true. <laughs> right. In other words, we're really not interested in working on a bad case for three years and spending four or five hundred thousand dollars and, and three thousand attorney hours on it. And we get to select the cases that we bring. So we shouldn't have any cases other than very good cases. So if you're hiring an expert to say that, you know, up is down and down is up and gravity doesn't exist or things like that, I don't care how qualified they are. You're going to have a long day. If you're hiring an expert to say something that is so clear that you don't really need an expert to say it, you know, they're going to come across as a stellar expert and wonderful and everybody's going to like them because they're saying something that's obvious to most lay people. Sometimes you have a case where you have a treating physician that I assume might give you most of what you need. Yeah. That must be a good day, right? Where you don't have to worry about going outside and hiring somebody and be accused of paying them. Because even though you have to pay a treating physician for their time, they're the treating physician. They're part of the case. That's great if you can get it to happen. but Which used to be easier to do. Right. Now you can't meet with the treating doctors. They're lawyered up for whatever reason. They're med mal. Carriers make them have lawyers run interference to prevent you from meeting with them before the depot. And then they say, I'm not your expert. I'm not here to give opinions. And (laughs) you're arguing with the treating doctor. And so why would they say they're not an expert? Because they're told by their lawyer to say your job isn't to help the plaintiff win their case, even if it doesn't involve you, tell them you're not there. I mean, a lot of them are good people and they're going to be honest, but some of them will, even if it's obvious. 
I'm not here to be your expert. I'm not giving you a causation opinion. Okay. Well, I mean, they were in a car accident and their head smashed into the steering wheel. And I'm asking if the brain injury was caused by the car accident. Like, I'm not here to be your expert. I can tell you what the injury is. Like, okay. And let's face it. They know more about your client's injuries and causation and prognosis than anybody on earth. And they're the ones who are most credible. And a lot of times they're excluded from the process. A great example is in federal court where you have a treating doctor in an auto case or whatever case it is. You got a treating doctor, somebody who's had significant treatment, whether they're, you know, like paralyzed or burned, whatever it is. Some courts require a report and, you know, and a case list and all of this bureaucratic nonsense for a treating doctor in a case. So what you end up doing is the treating doctors, number one, don't have the time and patience to do any of that. They're busy treating patients and they're not interested in doing all this for one case or litigation. So what you end up doing is both sides have the least credible, least accurate information about the person's health because you don't have any treating doctors testifying about what their condition is. But the other thing, too, I wanted to mention was in medical malpractice cases, there is an inherent underlying issue here about doctors aren't going to speak up. I can count on one hand the times in my career I've had a local treating doctor step up and say, look, this shouldn't have happened. This was negligent. We have cases where the subsequent treating doctors, the reason the client's in our office. Because they told right. them you need a lawyer. This was negligent. They tell them this was negligent. And then, of course, when we meet with them. They won't it, say it. They, they won't say it. I mean, it's not dissimilar to the blue wall of silence. Yep. No, I, police officers. So this, is, this was a good day. This was a good day. And I'll tell you, this was a case a while back. And I had a neurosurgeon operate on my client's spine and decided to biopsy the S1 nerve root, okay, which you don't do because it wasn't injured. It didn't need to be biopsied. It doesn't grow back. And it was a very severe, significant injury, lifelong permanent injury. And that client was in my office because his subsequent treating surgeon told him that, that this never should have been done. There's no reason for this. This never happens. I've never seen it happen. And so I decided to take that doctor's deposition. So this would have been the subsequent treating neurosurgeon. And again, I don't go in with high expectations when it's a treating doctor. I didn't think he'd give us negligence in the case. So I get in there and I did the direct first. And my questions were, have you ever done this? No. Have you ever seen this? No. Do you know anybody who's ever done this before? No. Doctor, I kept broadening it a little bit. Can you think of any reason why anybody would ever do, do this? No. Are there any circumstances you can imagine where this would be proper to do? No. And then I didn't ask him the final question. I just got what I thought I needed. And then I watched the defense lawyer went go through some cross and good lawyer. And he was sitting there thinking the same thing, thinking, well, what do I I ask ask him? Should I I ask him? Should I not? And, And then if he asks him and he says, yes, it was, he's done. He's screwed. What he said was, now, you're not saying that this was negligent, are you? And the doctor goes, no. Uh, Yeah. Well, redirect. Because, doctor, you don't want to give an opinion under oath whether or not it was negligent. Right. right? But the whole point was that was a good day with a subsequent treater. So your question was about treating doctors. Yes, they're terrific. Wonderful. If they make themselves available and they take the time to give the deposition and they're not rushed, which they are most of the time, that's the best thing. I mean, treating doctors are the best expert on a lot of the medical issues almost always. One thing some experts come with is a thick CV, a curriculum vitae, you know, resume. How important is it to most jurors that they see a doctor that comes from a prestigious school, has uh, written a bunch of articles? It's not. I think it depends on how good that expert is at communicating. 
They go, well, no, I don't have a million publications because I've spent my career actually treating patients. So that was- Or I've spent my career building engines. So Tim and I both have it. There's an emergency room doc who practices in Chicago. I've used him half a dozen times or so at trial. He has a one-page CV and doesn't have any publications. And he is phenomenal at communicating and teaching and talking to people. That's why I use him. And he's kind of a no BS guy, calls it like it is. We've used him successfully, as I said, in probably half a dozen trials over the course of my career. And when I introduce him for his qualifications, I introduce him, what kind of doctor are you? I'm an emergency room doctor. And I have him look at the jury and I say, doctor, how long have you been doing this? And uh, 42 years, 43 years. And during that time, how many individual emergency room patients have you treated? And the last time I asked him that, he said, well, you know, about four or five years ago, there was some reason for me to calculate that. And as of that time, it was about 140,000 emergency room patients. I mean, what else do you need to qualify somebody than that? To what extent did the defendants push this credentialism where they brag about the best schools and the most articles? And It seems to me, especially in med mal cases, half of the direct that is done of defense experts is going through their CV. In my experience, it ends up being half of them. The jury's bored to death. But they think it's important. Yeah. Right. And look, if your doctor's from Yale or Harvard and mine is from somewhere in the middle of nowhere, no one has heard of, of course, that can make a difference. But I mean, you don't want to hire somebody who, you know, people are going to go, I don't even know where you like, are you sure you went to school? But all things being equal, I think if they both went to pretty good schools the difference of whether someone has a 40-page CV with all kinds of publications and presentations and stuff, as opposed to our one-page CV doctor who can say, I've treated 150,000 patients just like this, I'll take the one with the one-page CV. It all depends on who they are, their ability to relate to people and communicate. Yeah, It's the ability to teach and communicate. And if you've got somebody who's good at that, I don't think it matters what they're being paid. I don't think it matters how thick their CV is or where they went to school. They can explain away bias things. Like we have a fire expert we use all the time. And he has testified many times for the plaintiff, for us and others in automotive product fire cases, right? And the defense, and this has happened to you in a trial, I think, John, was pointing out, now, Mr. So-and-so, you have never testified on behalf of GM or Ford or any auto product manufacturer in a case involving an alleged defect ever, have you? And he says, well, no, because once you testify for a plaintiff once, my experience, none of those product manufacturers are ever going to hire me yeah, ever right. in and my see, I think he even said it's sort of a political issue. <laughs> yeah, you know? and the whole jury laughed. And, yeah, and that's the truth. <laughs> and also, you got to look at what the issue is. And a lot of times, I think most of the times, most witnesses are overqualified. You know, the issue comes down to some factual dispute. Most of the doctors, no matter what their qualifications are, aren't arguing whether or not something should have been done. They're arguing about whether the facts were that it needs to be done at this particular time or it needs to be done earlier or something like that. How often have you seen it over your careers that an expert is being used in a case where they really don't have any of that formal education, but it might be a welder? or somebody else who's just done it, whatever it is, who's hands-on experience and comes in and serves as an expert. Is that a rare thing? It's pretty rare. I had a product case last year that involved a plumbing product. I had an engineer 
who was testifying for us. It was a recalled product, but they were still disputing liability. And I found an engineer who had actually been hired, outsourced by the actual defendant, and they didn't realize it, to look into the product as part of the recall process. So he had incredible, like very high credibility. He'd been hired by them to look into it and decided it was defective before I hired him. The other side had an engineer who came in and, you know, he was trying to explain how they wouldn't have known. It was really a defense to punitives. And he said, I'm not giving an opinion about defect, which the jury would know. Okay, so the product is defective. But they also hired a plumber to go after a third party defendant who had like not replaced the something for the recall. And they didn't think that through. And their plumber expert who never testified before, who was a really nice guy and he was doing a good job beating up the third party defendant in a real folksy, like matter of fact way, like, look, the product's recalled. You probably need to pay attention to the recall notice. You need to get it replaced, et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't think that I, of course, was going to go, why do they need to do that? Because it's dangerous? Yeah. Because it's defective? Yeah. And the lawyer's going nuts. So it's pretty rare for me that I'm not encountering somebody who's very, you know, highly educated in this school and that school and this school, and they're an experienced testifier. If I get, you know, an electrician, a plumber, somebody who's just a person doing the job that can talk matter-of-factly, if they do a good job, I'm terrified of that person. I'm not but, terrified. But, you know, like we were saying before, though, if you get a very, very highly qualified, specialized person as an expert, you're going to get some straightforward answers from them on certain things. Yes. I had a case with whether or not a spark could ignite a gasoline fume under certain circumstances. Very complicated case. And the other side hired an expert whose like entire life was devoted to, he worked in the petroleum industry to figure out how static charges can ignite gasoline vapors, basically. And he got into the measurement of the energy in joules and millijoules and the vapors and how quickly the gasoline flowed through the nozzle. It was a fire and an explosion at a gas station. You know, talk about a CV. He had a, like a 300-page CV, and he was probably one of the most qualified peoples on this very, very narrow issue in the country. And I took his deposition for about four or five hours and didn't understand a whole lot of what he was saying. I wasn't able to complete the deposition that day. So we took a break and I did have his report that was produced at the day of the deposition. And I went and hired a chemist from the University of Missouri and spent a week with that chemist and helped me. We had about a week between the depot and the redepot. We spent that time looking at the factual scenario, like the, a model. He Basically, he did a computer model showing that under these circumstances, this was impossible to happen. It was their defense that it was an impossibility. And I learned quickly that if you just tweaked some of the assumptions in terms of how fast the gasoline flowed, what the temperature was outside, whether the gas in the can was in the sunlight or it was in the shade, if you just change those parameters, then the answer on that model was, yes, it was within the realm of possibility for this happening. It was primarily a warning case. And this guy was as like specialized and qualified as you could imagine on this topic. And when I went back to depose him, he was very honest and very straightforward. His first time, I think, the first time he'd ever served as an expert. And I presented him with these alternative assumptions, and he admitted ultimately what we were trying to prove in the case, that under these certain circumstances, it's very unlikely, but it is possible. And that was his opinion. So again, it cuts both ways. If you've got an expert that's there to address one or two issues in the case, you better be aware of the other nine issues that they're going to be asked about and figure out what they have to say about those before you decide to disclose them. That highlights the importance of taking someone who's got tons of education, who thinks in abstract terms, and communicating that information in ways that jurors without that education could understand and find credible. In other words, we're wandering into our next topic, which is the ability to communicate. 
John, you've often said, you've read studies that I think you said, what, 75, 80, 90% of the communication we have with each other is not through words, it's through body, right. body language yeah. and, and gestures. Right. Eye and, contact, body language. So how, how else can we break this ability to communicate down? What are you looking for in experts? There's really only one way to figure it out. I mean, before you decide to hire a person, you need to either get on the phone with them or have a Zoom with them. And when you're asking them questions, if they're able to, in plain terms, make you understand what they're saying and you believe what they're saying is true. I think it's good to have a sense of humor. What you need to do is you need to go to lunch or dinner with your expert and find out about their background, not their professional background, but are they married? Do they have children? How old are they? What activities do they participate? The expert I was telling you about in Chicago, I remember our kids were about the same age and I remember he was very much into hockey. But I think the only way, as Tim said, the only way you're going to figure that one out is to spend time with them. Or call another, which, you know, one of the next things we're talking about in multiple steps is extensive background check. Call colleagues of yours that have used them and ask them, how good are they at communicating with the jury? And you still want to talk to them yourself, right? But if there's another lawyer in town or another lawyer in the inner circle or something that has used somebody before, give them a call. Like, does the jury like them? Are they able to communicate like effectively to them? And sometimes you can find things in their background, like major charitable works yeah. or Doctors Without Borders or things like that. If it connects with you, it's going to connect with the jury. I mean, look, we're all experts at gauging whether somebody's friendly or somebody is a threat or somebody's, you know, an asshole. I mean, we're all experts at that. We do that without even knowing we're doing it. We form impressions of people just by looking at them, meeting them, their tone of voice, how they're looking at us. And so if you take that expert out to dinner and you come back and you say, what a really nice woman, what a nice person, and you want to spend more time, you know, would you want that person to live next door to you, right? Would you want to work with that person? If you leave a meeting with a potential expert and you kind of scratch in your head going, man, I can't figure this person out. Well, guess what? Good things aren't in store for you. Yeah. Forward. And if you have your first call with an expert to try to figure out before you want to send them all the materials to review, but kind of laying things out and they're saying the things you want, but you find yourself eager to just get off the phone with this person. Even if they're saying the things you want, you might want to keep looking. I'm trying to think about the things that are important when I'm talking to people on the street or friends or new people I've just met who are promoting a viewpoint. And I think it's so many of the same tools. I'm looking for some degree of humility. If I have somebody who just barks out their talking points, that's not doing it. No. I want someone who thinks- What's well, someone disarming? Here's things we don't know. Here's things we do know. Someone who's self-critical, they will drop things in their conversation and say, I got to be careful not to jump on that because I don't know this yet. People who entertain alternative hypotheses, just spontaneously, you know, who generate their own counterfactuals. Yeah. So if you have an expert who does all those things and still makes it through the gauntlet with their opinions that are important on the case, I think that's really important. Some experts are just so likable and disarming. You know, we all have particular lawyers we end up opposing, working with from the opposing side more often than others. And some of them, you know, can be more difficult and, you know, give a lot of grief to an expert. And when you have a really good one, you know, there's some lawyers I work with that I know are kind of mean to experts. But in doing so, we're good at getting some admissions out of them. When you have a really good expert to watch them with those lawyers who like just completely disarm them by being, oh, you know what? That's a, let me think about that. That's a really good point and develop a rapport with them. It's a really good feeling. You can kind of, the tension eases a little bit and you can go, all right, my experts got this. 
Yeah, think of one of your favorite teachers, maybe even a subject that wasn't your favorite subject, but you enjoyed being in the class because how they treated you and they made things interesting and they were good at explaining things. And that's what our job is. Our job, and I've said this before, our job is to simplify things. I have written in my desk drawer, in the wood portion of my desk drawer, I wrote this decades ago, I wrote, uncomplicate the complicated. And that's what we do. Everything that we do is pretty complicated. I mean, product cases, the med mal cases, whether it's a surgery or whether something caused cancer, it gets really complicated. And what we need to do is we need to try to simplify that, make it understandable, make it logical, reasonable. And, you know, if you don't have an expert that's able to do that, you're in trouble. We're talking about selecting experts. We're at the end of this episode, but we have a lot more to talk about. Next episode, we're going to start with locating experts and actually getting down to choosing and how to evaluate them. But thanks for joining us so far. There's a lot more to come. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.